April the 41st, being a quadruple leap year, I was driving in downtown Atlantis. My Barracuda was in the shop, so I was in a rented Stingray, and it was overheating. So I pulled into a Shell station. They said I'd blown a seal. I said, fix the damn thing and leave my private life out of it, okay, pal? While they were doing that, I walked over to a place called the Oyster Bar. A real dive. But I knew the owner. He used to play for the dolphins. I said, hi, Gil. You have to yell, he's hard of hearing. Gil was also down on his luck. Fact is, he was barely keeping his head below water. I bellied up to the sandbar. He poured with the usual. Rusty snail, hold the grunion, shaken, not stirred. With a peanut butter and jellyfish sandwich on the side. Heavy on the mako. I slipped him a fin. On porpoise. I was feeling good. I even dropped a sand dollar in the box for Jerry's squids. For the halibut. Well, the place was crowded. We were packed in like sardines. They were all there to listen to the big band sounds of Tommy Dorsal. What soul? Tommy was rocking the place with a very popular tuna. Salmon chanted evening. And the stage was surrounded by screaming groupers. Probably there to see the bass player. One of them was this cute little yellowtail. And she's giving me the eye. So I figured this is my chance for a little fun. You know piece of Pisces. But she said things I just couldn't fathom. She was too deep, seemed to be under a lot of pressure. Boy, could she drink. She drank like a, she drank a lot. I said, what's your sign? She said, aquarium. I said, great, let's get tanked. I invited her up to my place for a little midnight bait. I said, come on, baby, only take a few minnows. She threw me that same old line. Not tonight, I got a haddock. And she wasn't kidding either, cause in came the biggest, meanest looking haddock I'd ever seen come down the pike. He was covered with muscles. He came over to me, said, listen shrimp, don't you come trolling around here. What a crab. This guy was steamed. I could see the anchor in his eyes. I turned to him, I said, Abalone, you're just being shellfish. Well, I knew there was going to be trouble, and so did Gil, because he was already on the phone to the cods. The haddock hits me with a sucker punch. I catch him with a left hook. He eels over. It was a fluke, but there he was, lying on the deck, flat as a mackerel. Kelpless. I said, forget the cods, Gil, this guy's gonna need a sturgeon. Well, the yellowtail was impressed with the way I landed her boyfriend. She came over to me, she said, hey, big boy, you're really a game fish. What's your name? I said, Marlin. Well, from then on, we had a whale of a time. I took her to dinner, I took her to dance, I bought her a bouquet of flounders. 
And then I went home with her. And what did I get for my trouble? A case of the clams. Just getting warmed up. Happy to see you again. Don't be nervous. Don't be rocky. You're our teenage guest is jockey now. And let me begin by wishing you a beautiful look. Did that voice inside you say, I've heard it all before. It's like deja vu all over. It is Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. You are at com. We start with an apology. Really sorry about what's been going on here, but, you know, do the radio show in the morning, 530 to 10 on KWOLF at 101.5 and 101.7 and streaming at KWOLF.com. Do that show. And by 10 o'clock every day, my voice was just absolutely shot. I'm suffering through a terrible case of laryngitis. It's starting to come back. The voice is coming back just a little bit here and there, but it's still very raspy. And I have been on a couple of days in danger of completely losing my voice. And if that happens, then you don't get anything, not even the radio show. So I've just been trying to move forward with this in the best way that I can. And it's just not been very good. Now, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is not only are you getting a podcast today, you're getting a pretty long one because I got a lot of stuff backed up that you know I've been meaning to get to that I haven't been able to get to, but we'll try to get to as much of it as we can today. That's the good news. The bad news is I'm having surgery tomorrow. They're tearing this hip out and they're going to put a new one in. I found out that a lot of that is being done robotically, by the way. I mean, there's a doctor there. There's a surgeon there and everything. It's not like the robot's just going to go nuts on its own. But to some extent, and I'll probably find out tomorrow when I go in for the surgery, you know, just what happens. In terms of recovery, they told me I will be zoned out for a period of time. Could be a couple of days. So while you are getting a podcast and a long podcast today, longer than usual, you're not going to get another one now until I'm guessing Tuesday of next week. Could be Monday if I'm feeling up to it. Probably Tuesday. You know, part of the other problem is, is when they knock you down, they shove that hose down your throat. And in the previous surgeries that I had, and by the way, do you know that tomorrow will be my ninth surgery? I've had ankle, I've had gallbladder, I've had a couple of heart procedures, I've had prostate stuff, I've had shoulder reconstruction, three back operations. I told the surgeon, I said, this time, just put on a zipper. So, you know, I apologize for those of you who've gotten really used to listening to the podcast, and I really appreciate it. It's great to have you aboard, but every once in a while, something like this happens, and you just got to roll with it. I'll get back to the surgery in a minute, but the voice, the voice. This is the first fresh podcast we've had in a week. I've had the worst case of laryngitis I've had since probably 1984. I remember I got it. It was just a couple of months into my time at Casey, and there were people running around all over the place speculating that I'd been fired because I was missing from the airways for a couple of days, and everybody went nuts. I still remember my very first girlfriend in St. Louis, Angie Messina, from beautiful downtown Cahokia, Illinois, 
had to call up the boss and talk for me because I had nothing. I, I couldn't even make a sound, like even a humming sound. Couldn't do anything. So I gave her the number and I wrote down, here's here's the guy's name. Explained to him that I ain't coming to work until this is over. So I don't know you know, if my voice is going to hold out for the entire 30 minutes because I just finished a four and a half hour radio show on K-Wolf at 101.5 and 101.7 and streaming at kwolf.com. By the way, there's going to be a new piece of equipment that is going into our transmitter late this week and it is going to really dramatically improve the signal so if you're one of those people driving around going geez you know i'm really having trouble picking it up uh, either signal because 1017 is coming out of the westplex and 1015 is coming off the top of a building in downtown clayton and they're not massive signals they're not the kind they're gonna you know boom out all the way to litchfield illinois and the advantage of not being on one of those giant you know hundred thousand watt signals is because they're owned by all the corporations and the corporations hand down their music playlists from 2,000 miles away and you got to do what they say and they don't let you talk they don't let you say anything they don't let you be controversial at all you can't rock the boat you can't do anything we're locally owned and operated we don't have somebody sitting in some big office 2,000 miles away telling us what to do we get to make our own rules but they get the job done but they'll be getting the job done much better by the end of the week and you'll hear the difference right away I also played wet dream and when people criticize me that's what they do oh you're still playing wet dream for 40 years People still like it. Every time I play it, I know you might find this difficult to believe, but every time I play Wet Dream, somebody is hearing it for the first time. You know how I know that? Because I get the messages going, you play that song about vegetables. What was that? That was life in the slaw lane. That was the follow-up to Wet Dream. But the fish song, a lot of people just say, what's the fish song? And it is Wet Dream. The reason I played it is because on the radio show today, we actually started talking about Kip Adada. That was the name of the comedian who did the song, both songs, Wet Dream and Life in the Slaw Lane. And he played the funny bone a couple of times. He never really crashed through to anything gigantic. Although you may recall back in the 80s, if you had the Playboy channel, he did a couple of shows on that station too. And let me just tell you, I remember Siskel and Ebert used to complain about this too. They go, if you're watching porn or you're watching something that is very graphic sexually, why do the people who make these movies automatically assume that we're stupid? Because the storylines are written like by a child, a child with a very dirty mind. But you know what I'm saying? This is not very sophisticated screenplays. And similarly, the stuff they did on the Playboy channel was really disappointing. Like, I remember one of the things, when Kip Adada was doing the show, I forget the name of the show he did. Even Alexa doesn't know that one. I have to look it up. But, like, one of the things they did, they brought a woman out, and then they had five guys behind a cardboard partition. You couldn't see any part of their body except that their dicks were coming out of a hole and just hanging there. Their dick and their balls were just hanging out of a hole. And this woman came out and had to pick... The one, I think there were five of them, had to pick the one that was her husband. And in the one that I saw, she picked the wrong guy. But but that was the stuff that Kip Adada was reduced to. But the reason he, his name came up in the show is we were talking about Wiffle Ball. Because the Wiffle Ball was actually invented on this date. Let me find this. 
Yeah, here it is. 70 years ago today, 1953, David Mullaney Sr. noticed his son was having a difficult time playing baseball because he was always breaking windows and losing balls on the school roof. The kid also showed no skills in throwing a curveball. So, Mr. Mullaney took a round-shaped perfume carton, cut slots in both halves, and when he threw the new ball, quote-unquote ball, it curved. And the amazing new invention was called the Wiffle Ball. Well, at various places around the country, there are men who have built giant, elaborate wiffle ball stadiums in their backyards, complete with, you know, a wall and lines down, an electronic scoreboard, bleachers, a concession stand. And then like, uh, you know, Saturday morning, 20 guys would come over and they would play these wiffle ball tournaments. And it looked like, uh, you know, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where they play the Little League World Series. Yes, yes, these guys must have been single. I know what you're thinking. You build a wiffle ball stadium in your backyard, you better be single, and you better plan on being single for the rest of your life, or at least for the remaining time you're going to be in that house. Kip was an interesting guy. He was a, he was a funny guy. And I don't know how much money he made off of the playing of Wet Dream and Life in the Salon Lane, but at least it was something, and he was very, very appreciative of that. His famous line was, Am I out of line? <laughs> he said, <laughs> he would entertain him. He would just, he said, sometimes he would entertain himself in a bar. He would just go sit down to the most attractive looking woman in the bar and just sit down next to her and then pretend he was having an argument with her and yell out really loudly, $150. <laughs> God. See, I find that very, very funny. World War II ended on this date in 1945. It was great because if you were a soldier, you could uh, just run into Times Square, grab a pretty looking nurse and plant one right on the kisser. Couldn't do that today. Oh my God. Can you imagine? You got soldiers and sailors that have been fighting a war to save the world for four years. They come back. They're celebrating the end of the war. You kissed a woman without her consent. World was a different place. World was a different place. All right, let's talk Maui. God, I don't even know what to say. It's just absolute chaos. You hear these stories, and I'm going to play one for you here in just a minute, to hear these stories that are just heartbreaking, and they sound like an overwritten disaster movie where people are running from their homes and just jumping into the water to escape being burned alive. And they're in the water, not for a couple of minutes, but for like, you know, 24 hours and they come back to absolutely nothing i think hawaii is one of those really grossly overpriced trips that you can take i mean get it on your bucket list take it off your bucket list you go i was always puzzled by dave murray because he and his lovely wife you know they had property there for a while it was a timeshare or something they recently got rid of that but they would go to hawaii oh no three four times a year First of all, it's a long plane ride. I don't like being on a plane for six hours for any reason, even if you get off the plane and you're in Hawaii. Is it pretty? Yeah, the beaches are wonderful. It's pretty and the culture and the grass skirts and all the history and Pearl Harbor and all that sort of stuff. You go, but you go one time because after that, I frankly don't think it's that big a deal. But some people disagreed. And Maui, you know, going to Maui, that will help you see Hawaii as something pretty special because that was... I was about to say is, but it was a pretty darn special place. But it's just another one of those examples where the government isn't always going to save you. And we know now that the government officials, the two head guys involved in emergency management, weren't even on the island. 
They weren't even there. You know, it brings up an interesting point because when we got our place in Florida and you started thinking about, well, you know, maybe we should take a vacation. You're already living in Florida. Where do you go on vacation? You're already in the number one vacation spot in the contiguous 48 states. So what do you do? And we haven't figured it out yet, by the way. We're thinking maybe that around Christmas time we would go skiing. So you really do have to ask yourself the question, if you're already living on Maui, where are you going to go that's better? But these guys weren't even there. And it doesn't sound like they had very good planning. It sounds like a couple of people said somewhere along the way that Maui would be vulnerable if there was some sort of wildfire and apparently nobody paid any attention to them. And then Lauren Boebert has to go complicate things by putting up a picture and trying to score political points because, yeah, uh, Maui burning the ground. Where's Joe Biden on vacation? Uh, that's a lie. That's not even true. Before the weekend even started, he had already you know released all the funds and that sort of stuff. So she was just making that up. But the other problem is we've already established the fact that it's six hours away and it's not like you know Hurricane Sandy where somebody could just come in from New York and drive down the highway and bring in a bunch of supplies by truck. You're in freaking Hawaii. It might take a while for the supplies to get there. Even with a, you know, even with the best effort the government could put together, it's going to take a while for that stuff to get there. But there's no phones. There's no internet. There's no food. They're running out of water. We already talked about last week the fact that Mick Fleetwood had a place there, burned to the ground. He had a restaurant there. This brings up an interesting story because, like I said, you're going to hear this guy talk in just a minute. And his wife, I don't think, says anything, but you're going to hear her not crying, but sobbing in the background. And for good reason. You'll hear it in just a minute. But you know, this brings up an interesting point, as I said, because this was maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago when Senator John McCain was still alive. And there was some little town in northern Arizona. And there was some sort of a train derailment or a tanker overturned or something. And all this noxious gas started to be released into the community. And they had to evacuate. They had to get everybody out because otherwise you breathe that stuff in, it'll burn your lungs and you die. So people went to the radio stations trying to get updates. And of course, these days, if you know anything about a radio station on the weekend, there's nobody even in the place from about 6 o'clock Friday night until 5 o'clock Monday morning. There's nobody there. And I mean, nobody. The computers are all programmed. The automation takes over. You're like, but JC, I was listening to it. I can hear the guy talking. That stuff was probably recorded on Thursday or Friday afternoon. It's loaded into the computers. There's software that figures out, okay, this goes here, this goes there to make it sound like a real radio show. But there's nobody there. Half the stuff you're listening to on St. Louis radio isn't even being done live. And in many cases, isn't even being performed by somebody who is in St. Louis. There's one radio station with a midday show. The gal is in San Francisco. She just doesn't say anything about it. I at least tell you that we bounce back and forth from St. Louis. I think you absolutely deserve that. I respect my audience a little more than that. But, uh, yeah, there's just so much of that stuff. In the business, it's called voice tracking. That's what it's called in the radio business. So, anyhow, this tanker overturns. People are trying to get information from local media, particularly radio, and nothing. Nothing. Because nobody's there. That has happened before with emergency weather situations where a tornado starts coming in and people are like, well, go get the latest information. Nothing. Radio stations, particularly AM stations, used to pride themselves on the whole idea of being that go-to radio station when there's some sort of an emergency, and now it's just a big joke. So McCain finds out about this, 
and says, well, we're going to put an end to that. Radio stations are licensed to owners who are supposed to be operating in the public good. And how can you be operating in the public good if you're not even there when a tornado is coming or a tanker overturns? Or in the case of Maui, the whole island is on freaking fire. Well, the fine, very powerful, and very well-funded National Association of Broadcasters, the NAB, came along and shouted him down, and that was the end of that. So, anyhow, this is the interview, I think, yeah, this was from News Nation last night. And I like that station, by the way, because you know what they do? They do news. No opinion. Well, Leland Vittert, Mark Vittert's uh, son, guy used to be on Downeybrook, remember? Mark Vittert, are you outraged? Martin Dugan, you know. So that's his kid, and he does opinion. But the rest of it, when they say it's the news, that's it. It's the news. It's sort of the way that CNN used to be a long time ago. I remember I'd come home on a Friday, turn on CNN, and it would be on all weekend. And I loved those early CNN days back in the early 1980s. And I wish somebody would come along and do it. And the closest thing is this News Nation outfit. But anyhow, here's a part of the interview from last night. And this is a couple from the island of Maui talking via Skype. This is pretty heavy-duty stuff. And there was a fire because I saw people running for their life, in the, the, you know, in, in smoke. Um, even and I turned on the radio after we got in the car, and we didn't hear anything until 15 minutes later. And even the um, the uh, the radio station we're listening to was just evacuate, no direction. Um, not, hey, it's gonna. They basically had no information. It was a just generic thing that came over the radio. Uh, but no, absolutely no warning at all. And I really felt like this could have been prevented. I mean, I can't even imagine. Can you talk about um, what you and Andreza did at that point? Do you go outside? Could you see the fire? You headed towards the water. What happened? Um, yeah, pretty much. I just went, happened to go outside to check out the power lines. And that's when I noticed that the uh, whole neighborhood's on fire. Um, so as I'm kind of driving around the neighborhood, I only got 15 seconds in the neighborhood and everything's on fire. I immediately head back, grab my wife, the five dogs we're looking at, and I called my mom because I know that the, the cell phones were getting going in and out all day. So if I were to call 911, it could drop any minute, even if I, I could get through. So I, I made the last ditch effort to call my mom, had her call 911 because she's on another part of the island that had reception. She said that 911 said just follow traffic. Uh, the traffic and where they were directing us was basically where the fire was going to end up. You could see the the fire was getting pushed towards the ocean and pushed north, and that's where we were getting pushed. Um, they were basically telling us where to go. The, everything, was everything was blocked by police to go s- south, the safe way. So we were, they basically, and it's not the police fault. They didn't know that the fire was going on. They're blocking the roads for the... Uh, the telephone poles that were down uh or the power lines that were down but when that the fire just happened so fast that they were still blocking that road we do know of people that uh, just went past a lot of the barriers and they made it alive um i wish there was just more communication um right after the fire you know started and the 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 the, the the firemen didn't leave they left the fire early earlier in the, the that fire started early that morning and we were told at noon that the fire is out, the, the police are, or the firemen are going home. Everything's safe. Um, but that obviously wasn't true. But um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, all of our routes were basically blocked by police and it pigeonholed and forced us down into behind a town on French Street, which is an absolute death trap. So you see what he's saying. It was bad enough that there was no plan and that was a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off and might not have even been the fault of the police and the first responders and everything because they didn't know either. They were getting rotten information. But now it was even worse because they were directing them right into the fire. Laura, shut up. Nobody cares that your baby is eight months old. God, this woman. By the time we reconvene next Tuesday, we'll know whether the latest chapter in the attempts to get Adam Wainwright two more wins paid off or not. He is supposed to pitch against the Mets tomorrow, Thursday night. And people get the idea that when you see a movie that is based on a true story, that's exactly what it means. It's based on it. It doesn't mean that the stuff you see in the movie actually happened. We're finding that out now with this Michael Orr situation in the Tui family, who is claiming now that Michael Orr threatened to go public with his allegations unless they paid him $15 million. 15 mil, that's a lot. But he's saying that he signed away all of his rights, like a conservatorship, like what they did to Britney Spears when they thought she was crazy, which she probably was, it's like, you know, or like when your grandfather has a stroke and he can't make decisions for himself anymore, you get the uh, power of attorney. And that's not the situation that he was in. And he's claiming that they robbed him, basically took all of his money, took all the rights to everything, kept all the money. And there must have been a lot of money involved, too, because if he wanted 15 million bucks, there's some serious cash floating around somewhere. But it's like the movie Rudy. People don't like me talking about this because they want to believe that what they saw in the movie Rudy took place. Joe Montana, the famous Hall of Fame quarterback, was there at the time. And he's like, like 2% of that stuff happened. And at the end of the game, the crowd wasn't chanting Rudy and the players didn't come in and turn in all their jerseys in protest to Dan Devine. None of that stuff happened. It just didn't happen. I had my heart broken on this movie called Bottle Shock about the explosion of the California white wine industry back in the early 1970s. It's a great movie. One of Chris Pine's first movies, Bill Pullman, is great in it. Eliza Dushku is in it. One of the great actors of his time, Alan Rickman, is in it. Dennis Farina, the Chicago cop turned actor who was in Get Shorty, along with a bunch of other movies. All these is a great cast and a terrific story. There's only one problem. You go out to Chateau Montalena in California wine country, and they're like, yeah, none of that happened. <laughs> Well, then what, what's the deal? They go, well, it was based on a true story. And the true story was that there was a competition, a worldwide competition in France to find, like, you know, the greatest bottle of white wine ever. And so there were submissions from all over the world. And this little outfit in California shocked the wine industry and won. After that, maybe not so much, you know, maybe not so much. It's a great movie. Just don't get the idea that it was a documentary because it's not. Again, like 2% of the movie actually occurred. Now, I like a good movie, and sometimes the story is not enough for a good movie, so they make a bunch of shit up. I much prefer documentaries where they tell you precisely what happened. But that's why there's a difference between a documentary and a motion picture movie, just a regular movie you go out to see. Speaking of competitions, 
It was on yesterday's date in 1981. I was working in Omaha, Nebraska at Johnny Carson's old station, WOW, and we put on a concert at Rosenblatt Stadium, which is the place where they played the uh, College World Series every year. Now, they've since torn that place down and built a brand new stadium, but this was the old place. And we had a, you know, outdoor concert there on the baseball field at Rosenblatt Stadium. R- Little River Band opened for the Beach Boys. Now, again, this is 1981. I'm still in my 20s and I'd seen, you know, some stuff backstage at concerts and I was just sort of getting into the full swing of being on the entertainment beat where I was backstage at a lot of stuff and seeing a lot of things and talking to a lot of people. But this was sort of early on in that process. And they had, you know, mobile homes, like I wouldn't call them trailers. They were mobile homes that they had uh, backstage. And I go back there, and again, this is 81, so it's right in the throes of that time where Brian Wilson really had been turned into a vegetable by that really bad guy who was portrayed by Paul Giamatti in the movie Love and Mercy. Great movie, by the way. I had never really thought that much about Elizabeth Banks prior to Love and Mercy, but boy, was she good in that movie. Wow great movie there's things wrong with it but it's still a great movie it just tells the whole story of brian wilson and the beach boys especially as it related to his problems with drug and psychological issues and everything like that right in the middle of all of this i go backstage and brian wilson is sitting there looking pretty much like a zombie the entire trailer is filled with pot smoke he has a uh, african-american gal who appeared to be perhaps for hire let's put it that way she was wearing all spandex i can recall that and she's sitting on his lap and brian to me i'd never seen anybody smoke pot like that it was like i mentioned competition it was like he was trying to win a contest how much pot can i smoke in these few minutes we have before we go on stage there there was no such thing as an interview i mean he was so zoned out it was horrifying to see to be honest and especially having been a big beach boys and brian wilson fan i mean i really looked up to him but he wasn't himself back in those days he just was not himself and we know the reasons why now because he had this doctor who was insane and trying to control every aspect of his life now i'll go out there i'm in the orchestra pit and i'm watching the concert and all i can tell you is brian wilson was sitting there at the piano I couldn't necessarily tell you that that piano was miked. He may have just been sitting there at the piano banging on the keys, and you may not have heard what he was banging on the keys if you were in the audience. And all the other members of the Beach Boys were singing and performing and the entire time were looking out of the corner of their eyes collectively at brian wilson as if to think to themselves keep an eye on him keep an eye on him we don't know what's going to happen he could do anything it was really scary and was very very disillusioning for like i said i'm i'm in my late 20s when this is going on like they say you know sometimes it's not a good idea to meet your idols we took an entire couple of busloads of people to the field of dreams in dyersville iowa back on this day in 1991 along with the radio station and uh it was fun you know i was up there on the mountain i just kept pitching to people over and over and over again and people would take a couple of whacks next person would come up we put everybody up in a nice hotel in galena and we had a really really nice time that was in 91 so that's less than two years after the release of the movie and people were still fascinated with that field and with that movie and to a large extent they still are and one of my all-time favorite stories just all-time favorite stories occurred on this date in 
1959. Now, I have all my planners going all the way back to the early 80s, but there are some exceptions for things that happen, major events in my life. I still have the dates, and in this particular case, it's easy to remember this one because all you have to do is go to any sports encyclopedia or website, and you're going to find this story. So don't accuse me of making this up because it really did happen. Now, as most of you know, I had an uncle who played for the Chicago Cubs in the late 50s and early 1960s. His name was Don Elston. That was my uncle. And, and, you know, it was part of my overall education. And I really mean that. It was an absolutely seminal moment in my life because not only is it a big deal if you're a young kid, eight, nine years old, and you even know anybody who is in the major leagues, let alone you have a relative who is playing not only for a team, but for the team in the city you're living in, in Chicago. And I know everybody hates the Cubs in St. Louis, but just try to look past that for just a minute here because it's a good story. And it didn't matter that the Cubs were, at that time, a perennial second division team. That's how they were classified at that time. And they just sucked. And there were only about 2,000 people at the ballpark every day. You could just walk in off the street. You'd call Wrigley Field and say, what time is the game? And they'd say, what time can you get here? Good morning, everybody. So on this particular date in 1959, August 16th, Cubs are playing the San Francisco Giants, and the score is tied. And, in fact, is forced into extra innings, and my uncle is out there pitching. And I I don't want to tell you who the guy is yet, but one of the Giants got on first base. And now my uncle is afraid he's going to try to steal second, so he throws over to first. Throws over to first again and again and again and again and again and throws over nine consecutive times. He throws to first nine consecutive times trying to pick this guy off. And the guys in the dugout are yelling at each other like, throw the ball, pitch to him, come on, throw the ball over the plate. My Uncle Don throws over to first base and on the 10th throw, picks the guy off. The name of that runner was a guy whose name you might have heard of. Willie Mays, true story, and one of my favorites. My other favorite is what happened on this date in 1988, 35 years ago. 35 years ago today, and you know the story. Mike Bush's birthday, we call his wife. We know you have a walkout. Just leave that door unlocked overnight, and then in the morning, we're going to come in about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. We're going to set up in your basement. We're going to be real, real quiet. We're going to set up in the basement, and then when Mike comes down to do the sports in his shorts, surprise, there we are. There's only one problem. As you know, if you've ever been in church, when you're trying not to laugh, well, here's how it sounded. We, uh, we told you yesterday on the show to be listening because we had a surprise and we do what time does the food get here joe i think the food gets here eight eight o'clock yeah we have to wait for wait till eight o'clock to eat jesus okay here's the deal today is mike bush's birthday and um <laughs> through a bizarre series of plot twists and dastardly communication between where are we joe olivet is that where our station is? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Olivet, Olivet, Creefcore, West County, and Chesterfield. We are currently sitting in the basement of Mike Bush, unbeknownst to him. <laughs> now, here's the deal, folks. Bush is upstairs asleep. We've been bringing our equipment in here since about, what, 4 this morning? Before 4 o'clock? Last night... 
we were admitted to the Bush household. We've been here for about the last half hour, just waiting here. Now, Bush, here's the deal. For somebody who wants to screw this whole thing up and call him on the telephone, we've disconnected the phones. Get out of the house. The phone call is coming from inside the house. Get out of the house. Now, here's the deal. Bush's alarm clock has been disengaged. The phones have been pulled out of the wall. We're in the basement. We're going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and his muffled screams won't be heard over the loud rock music. <laughs> we, we, all we're doing right now is deciding how to do it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of... I'm in favor of covering his whole body in honey, tying him to a chair, and then leaving him for the ants. <laughs> Be a slow, painful death, prolonged over an extracted period of time. Joe, what are you going to go for? Well, after we kill him, we're going to take the blood, and we're going to paint pig. <laughs> no, we're going to paint kosher pig on the wall. <laughs> well, he's Jewish. I think pig would be bad enough, wouldn't yeah. it? We're going to take his blood. We're going to take his blood. We're going to write pork. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, though, because Mike really is upstairs, and he really is sleeping. Now, we're down in the basement. If he wakes up and figures out somebody's in the house, and he goes to call the police, the phones are going to be disconnected. He's going to be so scared he won't know what to do. Let's rattle a few papers or something. <laughs> I like that idea better than ours. You know what we should have done? We should have got the sniper, who is a, a black man, about 6'4", 6'5", <laughs> probably about 250 pounds. Go upstairs and just, like, wake him up. We should have had him stripped down naked, put talcum powder all over his body, and then walk upstairs, ask to borrow a cup of sugar. Howdy, neighbor. <laughs> This is like this is like giggling in church. Oh, this is pretty wild, folks. This is this is pretty wild. I love this. All right. So anyhow, here's the deal. <clears throat> Yesterday morning, Bush, we couldn't. He played into our hands beautifully on this. Yesterday, Bush overslept. His alarm didn't go off, and so uh, he said, "No, I'll run downstairs and do the sports. I'll go. I'll run downstairs. He has like a little mini studio down here. It's just a microphone hooked up to a little mixer and stuff. A little power supply." So what we're going to do today is we're going to let him oversleep at 7 o'clock. Then we're going to call him on the mobile phone. We'll plug the phone back in the wall, call him on the mobile phone and say, come on, you got to do some sports. you got to come running down here. And then, of course, he comes running downstairs, opens up this door. You know, we I'll, kill him then. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be so surprised. <laughs> decide what to do with the body. <laughs> <laughs> so far, medical science has turned it down. They're thinking about doing some bizarre experimenting with pigmentation. The Coppelman's Deli offered us five bucks. We <laughs> <laughs> have stuffed. Hey, we got a special on tongue today. <laughs> As we know in his will, he's donated his nose to science. <laughs> he's probably going, God, Claudia, it sounds like those burglars are laughing. 
can't believe how much cheap crap we got in the house. As I pointed out on numerous occasions, <laughs> not before and not since have those noises ever come of any part of my body. 35 years ago. Jeez. No more carriage rides at Tillis Park. And this is something I've been harping on for a while. Not because carriage rides are bad, especially at the holidays, and I've taken them and they're fun. There have been some cold nights out there at Tillis Park for Winter Wonderland because it's kicking off exactly three months from tomorrow. That's very, very disappointing to find out that winter wonderland. It's going to look, it's going to be over 100 degrees in St. Louis on Monday in all likelihood. Probably 98, 99 on Sunday, and then Monday even warmer than that. And in three months, you're going to have blankets and heavy coats and gloves and hats and everything because you're going to be out at Tillis Park at the Winter Wonderland. Jeez. Anyhow, it, it, the carriage rides are fun. It's the, the condition of the horses. I mean, they've had some horses out. They even had one, maybe it was like five or six girls just standing there waiting to give the next ride. And all of a sudden, bang, the thing just falls right over and dies right there it's like jerry seinfeld's joke about you know the horse's name was glue stick so we had a healthier horse maybe you know but by the same token you don't want to be <laughs> want you and your family to be dragged through tillis park by high o silver you know get secretariat pulling you at about 70 miles an hour through tillis park through the lights so you want a slow horse you want an old horse but you don't want a horse that's on the verge of death well somehow the company that supplied the horses went out of business so maybe the people at Tillis Park Creek, and you know what? This is probably a good idea. Maybe this is a divine intervention here. This is a good time to end this whole carriage ride thing. So no more carriage rides at Tillis Park. And I know some people will lose their minds and start yelling and screaming about it, but come on, maybe it's time. Oh, that's right. And uh, today, back in 1988, Casey got caught stubbing the ballot box, the uh, Rolling Stone poll was in the magazine they're like you know favorite radio station and so the case you people bought up a couple of hundred copies of rolling stone filled out all the ballots stuffed the ballot box and ended up winning but somebody rooted it out and realized guys didn't really do it playing fair but they did a lot of that stuff back then all right i made it for almost 45 minutes here today but the voice is gone and uh, just found out during this recording that the procedure for me to get a brand new hip is going to happen at nine o'clock tomorrow morning so i got to be at the hospital at seven thirty. 
Then I meet the robot, <laughs> and then I meet the anesthesiologist. Hopefully, it's not like the Three Stooges where it's a guy with a big croquet mallet who just hits you over the head. And he just told me, by the way, I'm having an epidural. It's like I'm having a baby. But they said, you know, a lot of people are in so much pain, they give them an epidural before the surgery, and then when they come out of the surgery, <laughs> your legs are like rubber. You can't walk, but you're not going to want to do a lot of walking anyhow because going to be in bed anyhow so this is the journey that i will begin in less than 24 hours and like i said we will not have a podcast now until at least next tuesday and the radio show also will be jc pre-recorded corcoran but i gotta get this taken care of because like i said the doctor examined me and i said well doc how do i stand and he said that's what puzzles me so we're gonna get this taken care of my goal is to be back on the mound back on the baseball field by february when winter practice begins, let's see if I make it. All right, again, we thank you for listening to the radio station, KWolf at 101.5 St. Louis and 101.7 West and Beyond, streaming at kwolf.com. And if you can spread the word, the podcast is back with an asterisk, you know, because like I said, got to take a couple of days off now. But uh, once we come back next Tuesday, there shouldn't be any more interruptions for a while. And hopefully the laryngitis will be gone by then. But, you know, the other problem is you got to swallow that hose. They shove that hose down your throat and that can scratch up your vocal cords, too. So I hope I'm not dreaming out loud here. Oh, man. As Dave used to say, I wouldn't give my problems to a monkey on a rock. This is a good place to stop. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Don't forget JC's Roots of Rock Sunday show coming up on 101.5 and 101.7 and streaming at kwolf.com. That is Sunday morning, 9 to 11. Great old songs and uh, just a lot of fun. 9 to 11 brought to you by Weber Chevrolet. That's it. I'm done. Bring out the bonesaw, boys. In the meantime, we've beaten this one to death. Have a good one. See you later. Bye. The J.C. Corcoran Podcast.